Yeah, David, I, uh, in some ways I want to give a, a talk today uh, coming up out of your meditation. And like, where did that come from? Where did that thread that David was following come from? Where was that born? What wellspring was he dipping into? What, why those particular contours? And um, where's the source of that? Who is the one giving the meditation? Those are questions of the soul, at least I want to suggest. Um, yeah, and so we're, I'm just continuing our series. We have questions, and do we need the soul anymore is partly what I want to ask, and I'll go ahead and answer it. We do. <laughs> See you next week. Um, I, at least I think the terrain to which the word soul points is important, and I'll try to say why. And I'll also try to say what I mean by soul um, which I, it might, I might be, my definition is not, you know, the gospel or something, and you might have your own ideas and ways of approaching such a word, and you may or may not resonate with it, but I still think the conversation matters, and um, I thought I'd begin with a kind of an unusual story, a very personal story, and um, I don't think I've ever really talked about this in any kind of public setting, not because it's like so special or something, it's just that I've never, I've never really brought it up and I wanna use it as kind of like an entryway into, into how I'd like to wrestle with this question some this morning. So about six years ago or so, somewhere in there, I was on a nine day backpacking trip in Bears Ears National Monument. This is in Utah. And uh, I was with uh, Animus Valley Institute, where I have been doing my you know, guide training for this kind of work for a long time, but I was just a participant on this particular program. And um, I was in a very wild place. Um, Thomas Merton has this great line. He actually is speaking of somewhere in the heart, but he says, somewhere in the heart of the soul, there is a place untouched by sin and illusion. <laughs> And it felt like that kind of place. The landscape felt like that. You can just drink the water that comes straight out of the rock if you want. And um, there are still mountain lions and black bear and untouched, unexcavated Pueblo ruins just about anywhere you go. And it's such a wild place that I wouldn't really want to tell anyone where it is. Because <laughs> then, yeah, you, first of all, you have to drive about 30 miles through a reservation on... Um, dirt roads to get there. That's not going to help you, by the way. Um, just to get anywhere near where I'm talking about. And um, thankfully, there are still such wild places left in, in the United States. So I was, um, I was on, a, on a backpacking trip, and, and something happens, at least to me, after maybe day two or three of this kind of experience. It actually takes a while I think it takes a while for almost anyone to surrender to the place that they're actually in. Because whatever, just the mind, you know, it's just at work. And you're sort of like, wait, where am I? And your phone definitely doesn't work. And, and I'm in a strange place and I'm really miles from any help. Like if you needed to be extracted, you'd have to hit an SOS button and get a helicopter. It's that kind of thing. So it takes a while to consent to the experience itself. But also something happens to 
human consciousness. And I used to call it an altered state of consciousness, but I don't think about it that way anymore. In fact, I think consciousness, this just my opinion, is like an aperture like a, that you have in a, in a lens of a camera. And you know how an aperture opens and closes, you know, smaller and bigger. And I think most of the time we walk around with a very closed aperture, and we call that consciousness. And, and we like it. You know, we have opinions. We're like, I don't like Germans who don't like fall, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Or I like scary movies. I don't know who that would be. I'm too old. I've decided I'm too old for scary movies, and I'm too old to ride on roller coasters. Michigan's Adventure is not a place to go over 40. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> just that it should have a sign. No one over 40 should get on any ride. Um, anyway, consciousness is more like an aperture. And what happens as we deepen into wild places in particular is the aperture opens. <laughs> like the capacity to take in the place and the relationships and the dynamics of a place starts to open. And that feels like an altered state, but I just think about it probably as something like a more human, open state of consciousness. Like, one of the questions I have recently is how big could that aperture get? And what kinds of things close the aperture? Because you can take substances that narrow the aperture just to one, you know, one pinprick you know, or whatever, or experiences, or sometimes you're talking with someone, like, let's say a, a German who doesn't like fall, and you feel like your aperture is very narrow, like there it is, I've, I've got this person figured out or this conversation, but you definitely don't, you definitely don't, it's just the aperture is small, so anyway, wild places can open, open your aperture, really, and it's kind of surprising what happens to you, and I was in one of those kind of places, and on this particular program, we were invited to do uh, a, a solo time on the land and a fasted solo time. So part of that is just you got to pick a solo spot. And it, it's really as simple as picking a solo spot. <laughs> You're like, oh, this looks like a, a good enough place for me to be totally alone in a place where there are mountain lions and black bears and um, bobcats. I saw a bobcat. I saw a, a dead bobcat that um, was completely untouched by insects or wounds. It's like it had just died of old age. Just saw it, curled up next to a ponderosa pine. It was stunning. It was that kind of place. And um, anyway, I was walking in deeper into this canyon, and I saw this spot from far away. It took me a whole nother day to get to this spot. And I just had this feeling, this is the spot I want to be. I want to be right at the base of this little plateau. Because the plateau looked like uh, a giant buffalo. Huge, about the size of a football field. Okay, massive. And it wasn't one of those like, um, you know, cloud uh, imagination things where like, oh, I see a wizard. And someone's like, that's a dolphin, you know. No, if you were standing there, you'd say very clearly, this is a massive buffalo. The head and and the legs and the entire body and the, and the backside. It was just all there. I just had this feeling like I want to not eat and not move um, and just be in the presence of this, like, rock. You know, whatever this thing was, it had a kind of resonance, kind of power in a way. It actually made me cry when I saw it. So whatever, sometime the next day, 
um, I was there alone, right at the base of this thing. It, it, you, I couldn't really tell so much what it was because once you get close to it, you know, it doesn't. It's like it starts to disappear into the rock. But I was right at the base, right, right by the face of this being. And and after a couple of days, so maybe on the second morning, I was just lying there. And one of the things that that's true about extended times in the wilderness and about fasting is that it's not as special as it sounds like from the outside. Sometimes you're just like, I wonder if I got back to that person on email, you know? Like, it's, it's also that, you know? It's like one time, um, I, I, for an hour, I was working on my resume. I don't think I've ever worked on my resume, but that's what I was doing in my head, you know? It's like, oh, I've actually, I've done quite a bit, you know? <laughs> and so it, and that's what's funny about fasting because it's like, I, your aperture to the outside world is opening, like your consciousness is expanding, and the ego keeps wanting to say, wait a minute, <laughs> come back to, to yourself, you know, like get control of yourself here and work on things in your head, and at least that's what happens to me. So I was just lying there doing nothing in particular, and I was just kind of bored in a way. Just, I was just lying in the sandstone wash, you know, trying to get warm, really, just laying in the sunshine and not thinking. And if you have ever not thought, and, not, and, and it's happened by not trying to not think, <laughs> it's a very magical, like, oh my God. Like, I don't know, just to not have that incessant turning over. And that's what has happened to me. I was just laying there doing nothing in particular. And, and all of a sudden I felt, which is a bit hard to describe, that this, Buffalo being, which certainly had, has been in this canyon before any human beings were ever on this continent. There's no doubt about that. In the same shape, things don't change that much. Rock outcroppings don't change that much. It takes a very long time. That, this being had been standing there before any human beings, even indigenous human beings, ever set foot on this continent. And all of a sudden, I had this feeling that it, this being, it was looking up the canyon, was the defender of the ancient ways. That's, that's what came to me. It was kind of an imagination, thought, but nothing like, not an epiphany. It's like, like it whispered to me that it was the defender of the ancient ways. And, and you know what I said out loud? <laughs> oh, that's good for you. That's what I said. <laughs> Which is a weird thing. And, and I laid, you know, I just went back to just being in the wash, trying to get warm and just enjoying the sun. And then all of a sudden, I felt like it was inviting me to do the same thing, to, to inhabit. Like it was tapping me on the shoulder saying, you can join this way of being in the world, the defender of the ancient ways. And you know what I felt? No thanks. That's exactly what I, I felt. I had an overwhelming feeling of, no, that doesn't sound, how about like, creator of safe spaces, or um, poetic genius, or, you know, but it didn't really make sense. That's partly what I'm saying. It didn't make sense, nor did I know what that meant. If you were to stop me in the moment and interrupt it, it might evaporate anyway, and it would all be gone. I don't know. But I certainly couldn't have explained it, and I certainly didn't know what it meant. But it felt resonant, and it made me cry, and I got a little scared. That's what I would say. I got a little scared. 
Remember last week, I tried to say that beauty and calling are related? And it was like I, the beauty of the place was singing a certain song, and all of a sudden I was caught up into that, and, it's, and it felt like it was pointing me towards something. Defender of the ancient ways. And I could not have planned it. I couldn't have cooked it up. It's not like it was in my journal. Someday a rock is going to tell you know talk to me about defending ancient ways. Nor was it exactly telling me anything. By the way, I have, a, I have an opinion. I, I don't tend to think that nature is an oracle. Like you go out there and it tells you things. I don't actually think that's what happened to me. Like it didn't tell me anything at all. But it's much closer to, the only way I can describe it is like, imagine in, in somewhere in your being, we might even say in your soul, is one part of a tuning fork. You know what a tuning fork looks like? It has that little U shape. One part of the tuning fork, fork runs right through your being, right down the center of your being. And every once in a while, it starts to vibrate with something in what we would call the external world. That's what it was like. Like there was a, a humming that was taking place between the actual place I was in and the place I was in in my own psyche or spirit or soul or something like that. And I would call this kind of experience a taste of one's own essence or my own essence. Or we could even say soul, just a taste. Not like a, like a, a job description or, a, or even a role or definitely not an identity. If I would have left the canyon and had tattooed on my arm, defender of the ancient ways, nothing would happen, all right? In fact, it might even just go back into hiding and say, you're not ready for this at all. <laughs> because that's not what this is about. It's more like a resonant um, uh, tapping, something like that, a resonant tapping. Now, why am I telling you this story? First of all, I'll say, I don't know. I don't know. It only occurred to me this morning to tell this story because I don't often like to talk about highly personal things that sound like, whoa, this guy went out and didn't eat for a while and some rock told him about the defender of the ancient ways. You know, like, oh, God, all right? So that, I don't like to speak about that. And plus, I think we can ruin things with words. But some time, some time has passed. And just think about it for a moment and ask, what the heck has Kent been up to in the last five and a half years at C3? What's he been up to? And if you think about that phrase, the defending ancient ways or something like that, or some version of that, would you say that has anything to do with stuff I've been talking about? OK, that's what I think too. But I didn't exactly set out to do that. I didn't say, from this day forth. I just said, hmm, that's an interesting and scary prospect. And I certainly wouldn't want to tell anybody that I have a connection like this. to the Because it sounds like, what, am I going to be a fundamentalist? Like, give me that old time religion? And basically, yeah, that's what I've been saying. <laughs> Some version of, why am I talking about soul or spirit at times, or texts, or ancient poems? Or why do myths come, when someone's talking to me, and they say, you're not going to believe what my mom said the other day, I think of a myth. Like, why did I think of a myth? Well. In some way, it's because it's revealing a little bit about the way I'm shaped in the world. It's not really my education or my, I mean, I, you know, I have an education, I suppose, but it's much more the way I'm oriented. 
It's like I'm looking up the canyon, just like that buffalo. It's like I'm turned around. Most people are like, face the future, and I'm like, face the past. <laughs> I don't know why. I just came out that way. Or in some sort of, um, if you think about the stream of your life, and you have a million tributaries and, um, and ancestors, who knows why I have a, that particular kind of orientation, but I do. And why would I even be asking questions like, do we need the soul anymore if I wasn't also in conversation with ancient ways? Because there's not really a culture on the planet who hasn't had some version of that word somewhere embedded in their cosmology, a way of describing the essence of anything from a common wren to a common human being. Well, what makes that wren or that human being wildly and essentially themselves? Well, that's a question of the soul, in my opinion. Un like, uh, um, Merton has this line, he says, uh, a tree gives glory to God by, by it being unalterably itself. <laughs> Which is such a lovely thing. It's like, it's just un... I can't even say that word hardly. Unalterably itself. And like the lake out there, like anything at all, like David's meditation, like Nelica's playing of the piano. Just a wild manifestation, even what I'm saying right now. So anyway, that's partly a question of the soul. Um, okay. So let me just pick up on an ancient thread for a second. So I was thinking about the, the Jacob story. Um, and first, I'll read a Jung quote. Here's a quote from Jung. People will do anything, <laughs> no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own souls. <laughs> Even if you have different definitions of soul, that's, that's, there's some that seems like, yeah, people will definitely avoid things, correct? I mean, not you, of course, but other people, especially family members, very busy avoiding. They will practice Indian yoga and all its exercises, observe a strict regimen of diet, learn theosophy by heart, or mechanically repeat mystic texts from literature of the whole world, all because they cannot get on with themselves and have not the slightest faith that anything useful could ever come out of their souls. He's basically saying you can use spirituality to avoid your own soul. Thus, the soul has gradually been turned into a Nazareth from which nothing good can come. <laughs> That's his definition of modern life. We've driven it out of the village, so to speak. Okay, so I was thinking about the Jacob story from the Bible. And um, here's, I think this is a story, I'll just tell you, I'll just interpret it a bit. I think this is a story about the soul, really. It's a story about recovering or discovering the deeper dimensions of one's own being. Now, Jacob was born as a twin. If you, don't, if you know the story, it's the story of Jacob and Esau. They're twins. And Esau is born first, and that meant a lot in the ancient world in terms of how um, hereditary inheritance happened. Because if you divide it all up within like five generations, it's all gone. So they had this kind of whoever is born first, they'll sort of uh, control uh, whatever family resources are available. And so apparently, 
Jacob, who was born second, didn't like this. And when he, when he came out of the womb, he was holding onto his brother's heel, like trying to switch places is the way the parents interpret it. So they named him Yaakov, which means heel grabber. <laughs> and that had a negative connotation. That's the idea with that. Like, in other words, a kind of deceiver, a kind of like gr uh, someone that's going to cling and yank back and say, me first. It's like the kid in line in the first grade, whoever was like cutting in line. You know, that's Jacob, all right? That's the heel grabber. And, and it's funny. I mean, it's always funny to me because you don't know how the, the Bible came to be, really. I mean, there's all kinds of theories. I don't want to get into that. But you don't know, like, how historical these stories are. But I just think it's funny that parents would be like, heel grabber, you know? <laughs> but anyway, he, he lives into this reality by deceiving his brother into the birthright and deceiving his father into getting the, the family blessing and the inheritance. He deceives. He does the very thing he came out of the womb doing. And you think to yourself, this must be his identity. All right? But we'll just use this Jung line. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own souls. Now, if Jacob will do anything to get his father's blessing, now we'll just use a little modern psychology, we can say very obviously he doesn't feel blessed. <laughs> and you probably know people like this. Like there's this kind of insatiable, I'm not okay with who I am and I'll do anything to sort of get that sense of self-worth or worthiness. That seems to be Jacob and that's what he's doing. And he deceives his father, he dresses up, by the way, there's a whole other archetypal thread because it says that Jacob stays at home in his mother's tent. So he's like a mama's boy. That's the way of describing it. And Esau is a wild ass of a man and lives out in the woods and is all hairy. Okay, that's how the story goes. And those, you know, those are two dimensions, archetypal dimensions. One is much more like connected to the father wound and and. Uh, um, and wildness and hairiness, and the others just at home being a good boy, you know, doing what mom says. And mom and him actually cook up the plan to deceive their dad, you know. Anyway, um, okay, so he steals the birthright, steals the inheritance, and gets the blessing by taking advantage of his father's weak eyes. That's how it reads in Hebrew. That's only important because <laughs> he has to leave home, and then he ends up getting married, and his father-in-law deceives him and has him marry his oldest daughter who has weak eyes. It's very hard to detect, but that's what it says in Hebrew. So it's like, it's just a sort of ironic turning of the tide here. Anyway, that's like an aside. <laughs> now you would think he's got the blessing, he's married, he has kids, he's made a name for himself, he moved out of the area of his own father and went off deeper into the desert, and he has a life. It's like, you know, somebody that moves to the Bay Area, you know. I'm not living around my parents anymore. I'm going to the Bay Area, okay? Um, it's that kind of thing. But he's still, something is not quite right. And he hears that his father's dying, and he's like, I should go back home, you know. And you can feel that no matter how far you run or no matter how much Indian yoga exercises you do or diets you follow or repeating of texts, no matter what you say you're into, you're going to have to face some things here. And that's what it's like with his father. He has to face his own deception in a way. And who wants to do that? 
Who wants to look inside? I mean, do you? I mean, you want other people to look inside, but that's harder. So as the story goes, he sends all of his possessions across the river, which is a way of, of, of um, like a symbol of, of vulnerability or nakedness in a way. And he's just there at night. And the text tells us he spends all night wrestling with a man. That's actually what it says. You've probably, you've probably heard wrestling with an angel or something like that. That's not what the Hebrew says. It says all night wrestling with a man, but a mysterious man. Like, is this, and, and, and just before daybreak, he yells at the man, I won't let you go till you bless me. Do you feel how after all that, he's still not, his still... His concern is still, I'm not blessed. Can you feel that? And the man wounds him in the thigh and then gives him a new name, Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. And it's really at this point, he crosses the river, comes back into what will later be called the promised land. It's not called that now. And whatever, chapter two of his life. But think about the power of that story. It's a renaming, but what I'd like to say, it's a shedding of that old identity of heel grabber, and it's some sort of deeper, what I would think of as essence or soul that gets revealed. What has Jacob really been doing all these years? Wrestling. Wrestling with the divine. Wrestling with God. And until he's willing to do that in a kind of solitude, he doesn't know who he is. He just continues to be the heel grabber stealing little petty things here or there. But now he's got a wound, and he's got to walk with that wound in the rest of his life as a kind of reminder about the core of his essence. That's the way I'm interpreting the story. Are you following me so far? So now I'm asking the question, which is something like, do all people have their own kind of wild, unique essence? And what is how do we find that out? I mean, Jacob could have just been Heel grabber forever. Got that tattoo, you know? I don't know. How do, we, how do we go on that particular journey? How would we find out, especially if we, if we lose our way or we lose the plot somehow of our own life, how do we find that kind of like reconnection to some sort of deeper pull or deeper orientation or deeper way of being in the world? I'm going to give you some definitions. <laughs> I'd like to say that the soul, here's one way of imagining it, and I think that's all we can do. Soul and spirit have something in common, which is whatever we say about it is going to be insufficient. It's one of those kind of things. It's like God, you know, like, even if you say you don't believe in God, we still have the problem of what the hell are we talking about, Okay. Soul is a little like that. Like, what is it? What is the essence of a human being or of your individuality? What is that? So here's one way of thinking about it. I like to sometimes refer to it as a wildly unique way of relating to the world, a way of being in relationship to the world. Like, let's take David Dean's meditation, for example. One way of understanding the meditation is to say he was revealing a bit of how he relates to life how he related to this past week, or the wren, or the dark sky park. 
That's a, a way of being in relationship. And when I think about anyone individually, or if you think about your own kids or grandkids, would you not say, wait a minute, their way of being in relationship seems to be wildly and uniquely their own. And I think having a deeper soul connection is deepening into that way of relating, that way of being in relationship. Do you feel how that's different than saying soul is, I don't know, like a, uh, some place in the brain, or it's the eternal part of us? I'm just saying it's a way of relating to things. Just like I'm suggesting that one encounter that I had at the base of a rock just gave me a tiny clue, not anything other than that, a tiny clue that the way I relate to the world is a little like that, is a little like being in conversation with ancient ways. I don't know. I'm not trying to do that. Have I made sense? So I'm emphasizing a way of being in relationship. And that doesn't, it's not, it's not a matter of age or education or whether or not you've you know, been in Jungian analysis, you know, none of that. It's a way of being that you can more or less have contact with. Have you ever felt like you've gone through a season where you've lost contact with even just your own authentic self? Like, what the hell have I been doing? Who, why have I been talking like this or living like this or, or trying to show up like this or trying to prove or trying to grab someone's heel? You know, why am I doing this? I feel like, like I'm not at home in my own skin. Yeah, because that's a kind of being out of alignment with your most natural way of relating to the world. And I think some of the most interesting people on earth are the ones that have an, an easier sense with just their own essence. This is how I show up. They're like delightful to be around. They're not pretending. They're just showing up the way they show up, relating to the world the way they relate. Anyway, that's what I'm suggesting as a kind of definition for the time being. Now, here's what's in intriguing to me. Um, the great myths and stories seem to say something uh, in common here. That if you want to find out about the soul, it requires a kind of descent. That's the common image, like Persephone being snatched and taken to the underworld. Or here's one of my favorite examples. <laughs> Have you ever um, read Lord of the Rings or seen the movie where they're, where they're climbing the mountain and it's very snowy and Gandalf is there and he's like got his staff and he's like kind of plowing the way for the little hobbits, you know. So oh, we're going over the mountain, and it's stormy. And they get to a point where they can't go on. And then Gandalf says, we shall go into the mountain, <laughs> okay? That's the move. That's the mythic move. That's the difference between ascending and, and descending, mythically. That's the difference between, if I just want to use upper world, underworld, which is also part of the archetypal structure of most of ancient religions and myths, it's not ascending to God anymore, so to speak, but down into the belly, down into the whale's belly, down into the earth. And that can be avoided for a very long time. Do you know how to avoid that? Just keep climbing mountains, okay, instead of going in. And Gandalf says we have to go in. And guess what's going to be inside? Well, all the unpleasant things. <laughs> 
giant spiders and darkness and weirdness and also little clues and gems and that's the inner journey okay that's the journey of soul descent and for some reason i don't know why that seems to be we get to a certain point and we're like i don't know how i ended up with this and unless i go deeper unless i look within here in some way shape or form I, i'm 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 my, my life isn't going to feel as meaningful I'm just going to be climbing somebody else's ladder the rest of my life, okay? And that feels like a descent. Sometimes it feels like your life is falling apart. And maybe you've had moments where some even event happened to you. We're not just talking about psychological things, but an event happened to you that's like, my life will never be the same, ever. And it forced you to go into the mountain, not over the next one. Do you feel what I'm saying? And for some reason, the descent to soul has that kind of flavor. Let me read you a poem. Here's a poem about someone who says yes. All right, this is Rilke poem. I probably read it here once before. It's called The Man Watching. I can tell by the way the trees beat after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming. Right, a storm is coming. And I hear the far off field saying things like, I can't bear without a friend. I can't love without a sister. It's this kind of ache for connection. The storm, the shifter of shapes, drives on across the woods and across time, and the world looks as if it had no age. The landscape, like a line in the psalm book, is seriousness and weight and eternity. That's what the storm feels like pressing down. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What we choose to fight is so tiny what fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated. As things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. This is Rilke's poetic way of, of inviting us to consent to the storm. To let it wash over us to let it have its way, to be defeated. I sometimes think about this line. I don't know what it was about the last couple of election cycles, but it seemed to be about winning. And that's all anybody ever cares about is winning. I won. Or so-and-so thinks I didn't win, but I really won. That's the tiny fight. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. He says, when we win, it's with small things, and the triumph of itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament when the wrestlers' sinews grew long like metal strings. He felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. 
whoever was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened from that great and harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. Now, what an odd suggestion for how to live in the world. Go be defeated by ever greater beings. That's related to what I was saying about the aperture. Our aperture is so tiny. This is my life, my ideas, my convictions. The moment it starts to broaden out like this, the moment actually we can feel ourselves vulnerable again to the world, the possibility of being defeated, the possibility of getting knocked down from whatever kind of egoic platform we've been standing on. And Rilke says, and that's where the real work is. That's where we get a taste of the way we're shaped in the world, and we get reshaped in doing so, something like that. Okay. How do I want to end this? Two ways. I'm going to call it soul tending for the time being. I'm encouraging you to stay on the path of tending your own soul, to get curious about what is my unique shape in the world? What's mine to do? What's, what's a sense of calling in the old-fashioned sense of it? How am I uniquely shaped? How do I relate to the world? And I would like to say it's not a matter of your job or your role or your career or your gender, your identity, your Enneagram number, your personality matrix, but a way of being in relationship with all of those things. That's more of what I mean by soul, which in a way I, um, is not too dissimilar to what I think Thomas Merton means by the true self. What's that annoying noise? The fridge? Is that what you said? The fridge. <laughs> See, that was happening, you know, if you let your aperture expand, like, no, I'm serious, like, what is happening right now? Like, what, what is the world? Who's here? Who am I sitting next to? What is my way of being in relationship with the light right now and the time of year? and the buzzing of a fridge, you know? I, now, I, don't, I told you a very dramatic story in a way, I, although it didn't feel dramatic at all, about a kind of being somewhere in Bears Ears National Monument that is the defender of the ancient ways, and you think, oh, I guess I should do that, and that's how I'll find out. I'm saying the buzzing of a fridge can wake you up. The way you, you could be pulling weeds in your garden and some and a dimension of your own essence can tap you on the shoulder and say, this, this is a little like how you're meant to relate to the world. You could be holding the hand of a child and the whole world can open up. Okay, here's what William Stafford says in the midst of buzzing fridges. There's a thread you follow. There's a thread you follow. <laughs> this is his advice. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. I think he's talking about at least 
I think he's talking about a dimension of the soul. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it's hard for others to see, which is why I've never told anyone that story really about the Buffalo Rock in Utah. How am I going to explain that? You can't. Well, you hold it, you can't get lost, he says. Sorry, you're going to go into the mountain like in Lord of the Rings. What are you following? You're following a thread, and if you hold on to it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. In case this is news to you, that's what happens. Nothing you can do to, there's nothing you can do to stop times unfolding. And here's his advice. You don't let go of the thread. Thanks for listening.